Welcome to a Perspective Roundtable from the New England Journal of Medicine. Today, we're here to discuss the future of long-term care in the United States. My name is Susan Mitchell. I'm a geriatrician and health services researcher at the Hebrew Senior Life Marcus Institute for Aging Research and at Harvard University in Boston. I spent much of my career conducting research trying to improve the care of frail nursing home residents, and we're very, very fortunate to be joined today by four uh, national experts in the delivery of long-term care in the country, and I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves. Um, why don't we start with David Grabowski? Hi, I'm David Grabowski. I'm a professor of healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School, where I study long-term care and post-acute care for older adults. Hi, my name is David Gifford. I'm a geriatrician, and I'm the chief medical officer at the American Healthcare Association in Washington, D.C., and we represent nursing homes and assisted living. I've been there for about 10 years, and before that, I was the director of the Rhode Island Department of Health overseeing um, the healthcare and public health in Rhode Island. Hello, my name is Jasmine Travers. I'm an assistant professor and health services researcher at New York University in the Roy Myers College of Nursing. I'm an aging researcher with a focus on building the nursing home workforce, strengthening that workforce, and reducing inequities in long-term care delivery. Hello, I'm Sean Bloom. I'm CEO of the National PACE Association, which represents um, all operating PACE organizations across the country. Um, PACE programs are fully integrated uh, models of care that fully integrate all primary acute and long-term care services. Sean, I wonder if you could take a couple uh, minutes and just briefly explain what the PACE model is. Yeah, well, PACE is actually an acronym for Program of All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly. Um, and PACE programs um, accept full financial risk for all Medicare, Medicaid, and medically necessary services. And um, with that, um, organized care through an interdisciplinary team of employed individuals that work within a day center setting. And they um, develop assess, they, they undertake assessments, develop care plans, and manage the care of about 150 to 200 people where they're responsible for the full range of uh, primary acute and long-term care. And the goal is to really allow individuals to remain living in the community by coming to the day center, the, you know, the clinic of the day center, and, um, and then aug augment family caregiver role with home care in the evenings. But we, um, we accept full financial risk for all hospital and nursing home care. Only about 5% of our people are permanently in a nursing home. Our disenrollment rates are about 5%. And on average, we're only using about three hospital days a year. So it's a very proven model of care. Um, with very high satisfaction, and we're finally uh, beginning to um, spread our wings and grow. Great. Thanks, Sean. In February 2020, when a nursing home in Kirkland, Washington, experienced the first outbreak of COVID-19 to sweep through a U.S. long-term care facility, the high risk for elderly patients with chronic health conditions living in congregate settings, as well as for the staff caring for them, became painfully clear. Although the pandemic drew renewed attention to the problems, the underlying issues are longstanding. And in the past 30 years, nursing homes have evolved into complex healthcare systems serving an increasingly sick population with multiple chronic conditions. U.S. nursing homes care for nearly 3 million people each year, with Medicaid paying the majority of the $235 billion in annual cost. And yet millions more Americans needing long-term care support reside in the community largely relying on services provided by unpaid caregivers. 
There's been a general consensus that inadequate prioritization of long-term care in the U.S. has led to this a highly variable quality of care, critical staff shortages, racial and ethnic disparities, and wasteful spending, all of which have become so evident during the COVID-19 pandemic. A range of experts, including today's panel members, had devoted time to understanding the challenges of the long-term care system in the U.S., and developing innovative approaches to addressing them. Perhaps the current spotlight on the shortcomings of long-term care offers an opportunity for new investment in designing and implementing solutions for our aging population. David, can you tell us from your opinion, what exactly has the COVID pandemic revealed about long-term care system in the US? Thanks, Susan. I think the COVID pandemic has really identified the large gap in long-term care between what we all want from this system and what we're all currently getting from it. And for years and years, we've known we've wanted care in the community. Uh, and and when, we, when our family members ourselves need to enter a nursing home, we want care in a, in a small home environment uh, that, that's very home-like, non-institutional. And for years, we've struggled to, to uh, achieve care in the community that's uh, well-supported or those small home models. And the pandemic really, I, I think, shined a, a, a very harsh light on uh, our system. Uh, individuals in the community didn't have enough services. We really had to rely heavily on family members. And then for those in nursing homes, the numbers, Susan, that you've already documented, the huge number of fatalities, the strain on the workforce, um, it was actually those small home models around the country that that, that fared the best. These large institutional uh, facilities really were the ones with the highest death rates. And so um, what, what, did, what did the pandemic tell us? It, it told us we, we really need to push towards expanding uh, care in the community, uh, I think reimagining what nursing homes might be. And the final point I would make, I, I think the, the, the pandemic really highlighted how we've undervalued workers across the spectrum, whether they're in the community or, or uh, in, in facilities. We saw high death rates among our caregivers, but also lots of burnout, lots of attrition from, from the workforce. And so going forward, it's not just that we need to support care in the community and, and, and small home models. We need, we need to, to value the, the workers that uh, support this system and really uh, make it make high quality long-term care possible. So for me, I would say not just what the pandemic revealed, but more so what the pandemic magnified with regards to the long-term care system and the issues around inadequate resources and supports that the nursing homes have to be able to respond effectively and efficiently to disasters, to emergencies and what that looks like. The infection prevention control efforts that we've talked about within nursing homes and being able to actually uh, implement infection control programs effectively so that infections such as COVID would be maintained um, in a way that there's not widespread um, across the nursing home, just like uh, Dr. Garassi talked about with regards uh, to to that. Uh, I would also say, again, just the staffing um, issues with just not only understaffing short staffing shortages, but also the poor pay, poor treatment um, and the working conditions that these staff are, are working under. So just kind of thinking about if staff had infections, for example, or when it came to the vaccinations, how were staff supported um, with that? Not just, okay, you have an infection or you with 
regard to transportation or, or where staff are coming from? How are we actually understanding the needs of the staff so that we can be able to support them in what they're going through? So not just a body um, that is working and providing care to the resident, but the other needs that they have. I would only add that I think it brought out um, and magnified the pre-existing beliefs and views on elderly and long-term care. Um, no matter who and what you thought, um, everyone used the pandemic as a platform to promote their pre-existing condition, uh, pre-existing views on what needed to be done. And it sort of didn't let the data or the evidence sort of drive that. And then I think, um, you know, the, the challenge is, is that we as a society have not made elderly care and long-term care a priority. And that just sort of came through in the pandemic. And the question is really is, are we going to make a priority to invest in meaningful reforms? Or are we just gonna keep sort of doubling down on what we did before, which clearly led us to not be able to respond to the pandemic effectively and efficiently? I know for my, my work, a group that was really hit hard, especially within the nursing homes were the patients with dementia, um, who really couldn't understand um, any of the infection control procedures. They lost their cues with the mask. They uh, really suffered with isolation um, when they had to be isolated and away from their families. And um, I think they were a particularly vulnerable group as well. I think it's similar to what Giff had mentioned. You know, I think those of us that work in this field are very aware prior to the pandemic of the, of the need for change. You know, not only kind of diverting or proportionally moving care into the community, but some of the insufficiencies of the institutional model. Uh, I think what the pandemic did for me most prominently is it brought that to the attention of the American public. And I think it also on a positive note, <clears throat> I think um, allowed people like us as well as the American public to recognize how dedicated I think frontline staff are in long-term care facilities and how insufficiently they're um, respected in the way of wages, protections, and those type of things. And then lastly, I'll just say, we have always been kind of the, um, you know, the neglected cousin of the healthcare system. You know? Um, you know, I think you really saw that prominently in the distribution of PPE. We knew early in the pandemic that the population served by long-term care facilities was likely the most vulnerable, yet we were very, very much hindered in getting um, and prioritizing the distribution of PPEs to long-term care facilities early on. So just thinking about that, I would say the, the pandemic really highlighted and magnified how we valued older adults and how we valued nursing home care. So with regard to the number of deaths, both among staff and residents within nursing homes, if we would have seen those numbers in childcare, for example, do you think it would have taken <laughs> us so long to actually have these types of conversations that we're having right now? I don't think it would even been a conversation. We would have figured out a way to actually provide what the childcare uh, settings needed in rapid speed. So just kind of thinking about what keeps us from actually doing the things that we need to do really stems from our own, you know, and our nation's uh, biases and such when it comes to how we value um, this sector and uh, this population. 
I kept waiting for the national outrage. I kept waiting for the all the supplies to come, Sean, with the PPE, with the testing. Um, we could go on and on. But every time I said, this, we're finally going to get this right. And we never really did. And we're still living with it today. It has a double whammy effect in that um, many of the caregivers, as you all have recognized, really, you know, they put their own uh, health, but their family's health at risk. You know, they're really people who work in long-term care are really dedicated to elderly care because no one wants to work there. So the people who go work there, they care about the elderly. And they not only did not get any of the resources and saw that they weren't prioritized, they then got blamed. And so that double whammy. And so we've now seen a lot of people, good people leave and a lot of people saying they won't go work there. I have family members who are nurses and I've said, well, why don't you go work in nursing homes? There's some great job opportunities to do that. Go, no, no, no. I, you know, I want to work in the hospital. I don't want to work there. And so that's exacerbating in the workforce. So we're seeing a consequence of this. That's going to be a long tail afterwards, unless we dramatically change this. You know, we, as a government, we prioritize, you know, I think Jasmine says care for uh, kids. We prioritize care in the rural areas and we prioritize uh, kid, uh, care in underserved communities. We have loan forgiveness. We do all sorts of different things, but we don't do any of that in the long-term care sector. We've talked about a lot of the gaps and shortcomings in long-term care. We've touched on them. Um, Giff, in your opinion, what do you think is the are the top priorities in terms of palliative care, models of care, financing infrastructure? What are the major workforce? What do you think are the biggest gaps or shortcomings? Um, I think that um, we don't have alignment of all the systems. And David has shown many times that the payment systems are not aligned. The um, measurement reporting systems are not aligned and the regulatory system are not aligned. So you have three competing uh, processes that are not aligned to achieving the goals we want. And then the, there are broader policies that are not aligned that actually undermine the various issues. And so just as an example, if we want more workforce, there are no incentives for workforce to come into the sector. Um, actually, there's a statute that uh, prohibits uh, facilities from training new staff to come into a facilities if they have had a, a deficiency in the past at a certain level of citation, even when they correct it for two years. And that just is just devastating to bringing workforce in. So I think we have to sit back and look at how all those policies are aligned to trying to drive the changes we want to fix the gaps. Otherwise, we're going after each symptom. You know, we're giving Tylenol for a fever, not, you know, under understanding what's the cause of the fever and what and how are we treating that? I think it's just we don't have a vision. I mean, I think, you know, we, we, we sit here today and talk about what happened. You know, we're going to react. There may be some good that comes out of this, hopefully. But I but I've always struggled with in my career. Um, not really getting my head around the fact that there hasn't really been any kind of what I call national discussion on what do we want our system to look like. We've mitigated problems, we've addressed problems, we've come up with some small ideas, but I don't think we've ever had a shared vision of what we want this to look like in five or 10 years. Everything's been incremental, nothing's been fundamental. And I, and I think similar to you know staffing, we gotta really, you know, do we value people that care for our parents and loved ones or not? And if so, you know, I think we need to we need to kind of treat them as such. And I think if you know, if, if so, I think the the I think it revealed um, a lack of vision. I think it revealed 
a lack of thoughtfulness on um, the policy changes and I think the social engagement in that discussion of what we need to change. I know that's not easy, but here we are again, you know, reacting to a crisis. Um, and I think we're going to continue to stumble over these type of things moving forward unless we have a real vision. I think our, our system as a whole, and you already noted, Susan, in your introduction, that Medicaid is the, is the dominant funder here. I do believe we're underfunded. And if you look at countries like the Netherlands and, and Northern Europe, they put a lot more into their long-term care system. They're, they also have a vision, Sean, and they also have alignment gift, but they, they spend a lot more. And I, prior to the pandemic, I, I visited a, a nursing home in Rotterdam. Guess what? <laughs> they had a lot more staff. The staff were better trained. The, the facility was nice. Everything about it uh, was better. They do more community care relative to us. You know, you spend a lot more, you get a lot more. I think that that's part of what we need, Susan. I would also add on to that, that there, there's been a lack of accountability. And I think that's really uh, hamstrung our ability to put more dollars into this system. A lot of advocates uh, are really worried that the dollars aren't finding their way to direct care. And so I think if we're going to spend more, we also have to sort of put more strings on those dollars. We have to ensure that those dollars are making their way to the, um, to the caregivers we've been discussing, to creating those small home models. So when thinking about certified nursing assistants and how much they get paid, uh, an average 12 to $13 an hour, what does that really actually cover when thinking about their needs? So for example, rent that they have to pay um, per month or, or a mortgage, or if it's childcare, um, if it's food, um, transportation, for example. And then in addition to that, then being able to care, uh, pay for benefits. Although some positions would have benefits, having to actually now prioritize that small pocket of money and be able to pay for insurance is going to be very difficult. And we see, you know, um, nursing assistants who are underinsured or do not have insurance. And then also kind of going back to what Giv talked about with regards to resources and um, the long-term care nursing homes not having similar resources to other sectors. So for example, during the pandemic, when um, you know we were cheering for uh, those in the acute care setting and, and valuing those with which made uh, those in nursing homes say heroes work here too, there were certain um, benefits that were provided to healthcare providers in uh, hospitals that was not provided to those in long-term care settings, including certified nursing assistants. So, for example, housing if you were infected with. Um, uh, COVID-19. So when we think about when we're providing these types of resources to people like doctors and registered nurses in the acute care setting who they don't actually technically, yes, it'd be nice to provide them, you know, free um, hotel stays, but when those who can't actually even afford uh, those types of resources, when they definitely need it, um, is a problem within our uh, system. So that's something to think about. How are we really, you know, aligning resources to where they need to actually um, be um, a, a, a directed towards? When you think about how to begin to fix this system what are some of the, what are some of the possibilities that we in a practical way could begin to address these gaps i have always loved the pace program ah. and and i think the when you look at you know the nursing homes across the country are an incredible asset uh, in the healthcare delivery system there are about 3200 counties and there's a nursing home in almost every county in the country. And in many counties, they are the largest 
healthcare delivery system in that county, and that you have a physical building, you have staff, you have transportation vehicles uh, there. And in many of the rural areas in the country, we are we just don't have enough workforce for home health, for meals on wheels, transportation, adult daycare, any of the issues that we need to face. And I love the integrated model of PACE. And our, you know, our healthcare system is so siloed. Um, the question is, is can you pull off a PACE-like model that isn't just on institutional individuals, but really develop an integrated model of de- care delivery that utilizes the staff and resources everywhere. So when you're saying a stamp at night, that's to me the, the model. Payment systems are just one barrier to that, but actually you can overcome almost all those payment programs as PACE has demonstrated. It's state licensure issues that gets into trouble. Because if you're gonna run a nursing home that's gonna be an adult daycare, outpatient therapy, pharmacy, transportation, meals on wheels, all the PACE model issues, they have to get licensed as all of them. Um, when I was in Rhode Island, we we uh, we approved a PACE program. I think it required 12 separate licenses and it took them two years to get all the licenses before they could get up and running. It had nothing to do with the payment issues. The payment issues were so easy to work through. It was the state licensing issues. And I think that that's gonna be, that is a scope of practice barrier probably to reform in long-term care going forward. And no one talks about that. Yeah, I, I think if I was uh, advising policymakers on short-term steps, I really would go back to support of the workforce. I, I wrote a piece very early on in the pandemic with some colleagues that said, we're pouring all this money into our pandemic response. For a fraction of that, we could add $5 to the wages of every long-term care <laughs> caregiver in the country. Um, that would, as Jasmine noted earlier, make a huge impact on their livelihood, on their on their ability to stay, you know, in this profession. Yet we we obviously haven't done that, and I don't know that there's big steps towards doing that. So if someone put me in charge of long term care, nobody's going to do that. But if someone did, the first thing I, I would do is let let let's let's pay our workforce better. Longer term policies, I, I, I think this, this idea of reimagining the system, it's growing programs like PACE, it's more home and community-based care. That's where the dollars, I think, in the long term need to flow. That's where individuals want services. And then in nursing homes, I, I, I do like going back to the, to the model I, I raised earlier, those, those, those small home models, uh, part of this culture change movement, like a greenhouse, there, there are other models that are out there. How do we grow uh, those types of nursing homes such that we have a system that that encourages care in the community, uh, but when individuals need to enter a nursing home, it, it, it's a it's a small home model that that's well staffed and uh, very home like. David, um, could you explain just very briefly what the greenhouse model is? Sure. So the greenhouse model is basically uh, a. Uh, nursing home model that that takes the traditional model and turns it on its head has three major components. So the first is just the physical structure of the uh, of the building. Uh, unlike a traditional institutional nursing home, a greenhouse is really, a, 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 as as the name expresses, it's it's somebody's home, and so it's eight to twelve older adults living in uh, the house together. There's a kitchen there where all the meals are cooked. Each resident has their own bedroom, so it's 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 a completely different feel when you walk into a greenhouse versus a traditional nursing home. The second component is really the culture. It's once, as I said before, it's the it's the resident's home. 
So they come and go as they please. They eat when they please. They can go out and garden. It's just a totally different environment where, you know, you want to go into their room, you knock. This is not sort of the uh, traditional nursing home that's kind of built around the nursing home's needs. This is really about the, the residents and this is their home. And then the final component is the staff. Um, a traditional nursing home, once again, is very hierarchical. Uh, the RNs uh, sort of oversee it. They, uh, the LPNs report to the RNs and the certified nurse aides report to the LPNs. The, the work in a, in a greenhouse is very team-based. The, the staff are well-paid. Uh, they're valued. It, it's a completely uh, different, different model of staffing. So when you add all of this up, it, it, it's, a, it's a, uh, I think, a better model of care. And indeed, in our work, kind of evaluating this model, uh, higher quality of care, higher quality of life, uh, more staff retention. And once again, they did quite well during the pandemic relative to other nursing homes because of this small home environment. You know, when thinking about this reimagined nursing home and, and going towards more of a home model versus a medical model, really have to have all parties uh, on board and regulation kind of being on board with that too, what this reimagined model looks like when thinking about person-centered care and, um, you know, doing things differently that kind of put the resident, you know, at the center and their choice and what they want and their preferences. So that needs to be not just within the nursing home that is respecting that and honoring that, but then a system-wide approach that's also honoring that. Um, and then also something that we didn't talk about as of yet specifically is this whole idea of inequities in care that we see within nursing homes, you know, for many reasons. Um, so thinking about nursing homes with a large proportion of Black residents, the racial um, and ethnic composition within the nursing homes and the poor care, no matter what uh, race or ethnicity you are that you receive within those nursing homes, and then also the communities within these, uh, which these nursing homes are in. So that's something additionally that we've found over the years that nursing homes that are in lower resource communities have fewer staff, uh, for example, and also do poor when it comes to quality of care. So how do we address those issues? And, and uh, David alluded to before kind of the Medicaid reimbursement and, and that having, um, you know, kind of like a factor in what we're able to put towards staffing, for example, and uh, resident care, but really saying, you know, is it a proportion of funds that come in, you know, after we're saying increasing funding, go towards resident care, goes towards staffing, which some states are starting to do things like that, for example, uh, New York. And then out of a study in um, UMass Boston, they're actually looking at Medicaid reimbursement um, over a number of years and seeing, you know, does it really cover uh, costs and, and where are the gaps? So another thing I would just say kind of when thinking about that is we have a lot of studies that are looking at disparities, but sometimes it's difficult for us to move if we don't really understand, you know, what is the right, um, you know, kind of that like sweet spot. So when it comes to pay people more, you know, what's the number? And no one wants to move because they say, you know, well, what's the number that's going to actually increase satisfaction? But of course, it's, it's just more, you know, if we're going to pay someone only $13 per hour, but we pay a babysitter, you know, $20 an hour, at least, for example, why is it so hard to do these things? So those are some of the things I would say. And then another last thing uh, that I would know is um, kind of just evaluation and, and thinking about data collection efforts and looking at these issues, for example, among uh, staff by race, ethnicity, um, looking at how what we're doing, the changes that we're making, how is that 
actually affecting the populations that it should that we would hope that it would affect and um, impact as well. So, for example, putting smaller homes, putting pace programs, are those actually in settings um, in in areas that uh, the populations that need them most have access to them? Uh, so that's another thing that I would say for us to um, assess. We have a system whereby states are required to fund nursing home care and at their option and discretion, they can fund things that are, um, you know, I think more consumer friendly, more desirable, and, and some would argue uh, more cost effective over time. And they're just some profoundly, um, you know, obstructive <clears throat> elements to our system right now that I think we have to kind of address at their core. I, I agree, David, I think in the short run, staffing is where it's at. But if you want to begin looking long term, I Medicaid really drives our system, quite frankly. I think we underestimate how much Medicaid dictates, in large part, the contours of our system. And, 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 and you know, maybe that is kind of what influences the minds of policymakers that it's, oh, this is for the poor, you know, and, and we're not giving priority to, you know, the fact that, you know, your mom may not be poor today, but as a consequence of needing long-term care, he or she may be and may end up. So I think, you know, there's, there's I think, perceptions as well that kind of get in the way. Um, to making changes in our system as well. Jasmine, I want to come back a little bit to what you've been talking about. Um, not everybody realizes how highly segregated nursing homes are in this country. Um, and as you mentioned, the minoritized groups tend to receive poor quality care in more poorly resourced facilities. I know this a lot uh, from my own research and looking at the care patients with advanced dementia and how variable it is uh, uh, across nursing homes in the country um, with uh, minoritized um, nursing home residents in poorly resourced homes getting much more aggressive and unwanted care compared to the more high quality, more well-resourced uh, nursing homes. So, you know, the, the deeply ingrained systemic racism uh, that I think is, um, uh, within our long-term care system has um, serious structural components, um, fiscal policies, et cetera. It also uh, has a lot to do with the interpersonal um, unconscious bias at the clinical level within a facility. Where do you think we need to, what do you think we need to do to begin to address and um, make this a more equitable long-term care system? Sure, thank you. And just to give a little bit more context to what you shared, Susan, uh, what we saw during the pandemic, we saw greater COVID infections and COVID deaths among nursing homes with high proportion of Black residents. We see a high proportion of um, nursing homes with large concentrations of Black residents in neighborhoods that are socioeconomically disadvantaged compared to nursing homes with less than 5% of Black residents, for example. Additionally, in these nursing homes with high proportion of Black residents, we see you know, fewer staff, especially when it comes to registered nurses, and increased emergency visits and hospitalizations. So just in, in general, um, it's not a good setup for uh, nursing homes that are serving a higher proportion of Black residents. So when thinking about systemic racism, um, structural racism, and the policies and practices that kind of really perpetuate this race uh, racism that is experienced by these residents, as well as the workforce that serves them, we really need to first acknowledge that it exists and then kind of acknowledge the layers within it, it within it, how it exists. So um, taking 
to look at the disparities that are in these settings. Um, and then from there, you know, thinking about how we're investing in um, these nursing homes and the uh, settings in which these nursing homes are in, the neighborhoods that these nursing homes are in. We're thinking also about building trust, right? I know this was something that a lot of nursing homes did put into practice during COVID when they were seeing, you know, um, not large uptake of the vaccination among um, specific workers within the nursing home settings and actually having one-on-one -on -one conversations, figuring out what did the nursing assistant or, or whoever it was, what did they need to really support them in making the most informed decisions that they could uh, make. So really actually showing, you know, that individual that you care about them, or if it's that resident that you care about them. Um, um, thinking about reducing workforce inequity. So again, you know, uh, paying um, these um, workers, you know, a, a wage that is going to improve their, their lifestyle, but then also, you know, treating them well. Uh, we did a study where we reviewed the literature and we just saw how poorly nursing assistants are treated when thinking about, you know, the culture that they're from, when thinking about immigration status, when thinking about race, when thinking about gender, you know, it's a predominantly female um, um, workforce in, in those differentials and then even just hierarchies and, and how that um, plays. And then another thing I would say, you know, um, highlighting what David talked about earlier with the accountability, but also committing to transparency and communication. So when thinking about building trust, people want to, you know, be a part of what's going on, especially with uh, COVID, not just being told, you know, this is what you um, need to do, uh, but really kind of feel like they're part of the decision making and the rollout as well. Um, so I would say that's kind of uh, a number of, of issues that we can try to um, kind of consider when uh, dismantling structural uh, and systemic racism within nursing homes. I really want to just uh, key in on the on the last part of what Jasmine said. Yes, it's going to take policy change, like uh, more pay, better better benefits, but it's also about the culture in many nursing homes around the country. Very hierarchical, very little ability to kind of move up in that um, kind of job. Uh, some some nursing homes, GIF, have done a good job with this. Some some uh, uh, home home and community based providers have have done well, but many haven't, and 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 it's really sort of uh, kind of I think. Uh, led to um, individuals leaving the workforce. It, it, it's um, the, the the working conditions in, in many instances are, are quite challenging. That's something that needs to be improved, and that's not just policy. I think that's that some of that has to be organizational. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, even within nursing homes themselves, I think there's a lot of administrators and uh, senior uh, people working there could do to ensure that all the people in the nursing home get the same um, access to care or access to quality care, or whether it's counseling about medical decision-making and making sure that there's an even playing field in terms of the services uh, that they receive just within that uh, one building per se. Um, well, I think it's Jasmine pointed out, often the care is similar. It's that the, the, Minorities who are in facilities tend to congregate in poorer performing facilities. Um, and so it looks like they're getting something different when you look at them divided to everyone else. It's just that it's a systemic racism issue that they're in a facility that has the less resources. 
I would agree with everything that David and Jasmine said. I, I did want to add one thing on the workforce issue. You know, the workforce issue to, does tend to be women and, and tends to be minority or uh, immigrants. But many of the residents also are from a different era. And when you start getting a lot of them, over half of them, as you know, Susan, have dementia and you lose that executive function, they start saying things from their era that are very inappropriate and can be very hurtful to staff. And, and, and what type of support do we provide to the staff to work through that? And I've just, I mean, just being a medical director in some cities, I've seen some horrific comments being made by elderly demanding individuals to the staff. The staff are usually pretty good about it, but it's still hurtful. And, and they, need, they need that support because it's just one more thing heaped on top of them. Uh, which is just wrong on top of everything else that they're doing. Um, so I think that I would, I would just add that piece to, to everything else that was said. You know, in addition to wages, it's more than just money also. I think it's where they fit within the delivery of care. I say that because we, in the PACE community, we've rarely had staffing challenges it's with CNAs because they tend to come in, they really like working in the system where their voice is equally valued to that of a physician or a nurse or their inputs are extremely important. And I, and not to mention the fact for most of them, it's an eight to five job. So um, with the exception of home care workers, but, but what we found is that um, in doing some focus groups recently, really what makes them stay in addition to competitive wages is um, a perceived value in their input and their role within the team. And, and, and I used to kind of dismiss that as, yeah, that's probably important, but that's not, it, it's very significant. So I don't know, I don't think, have any solutions of how you do that in a nursing home environment, but I do know in PACE, it is the area of focus right now for our folks to really acknowledge and mm-hmm. continue to support the input of um, day center aides, home care aides, um, and others that work for PACE programs. We need to change kind of the, the entire kind of workplace culture. An example from, you asked about how, how nursing homes do that. I did a major evaluation of the greenhouse model uh, about five, 10 years ago. And they also sort of break down that hierarchy and it's much more team-based. Uh, the certified nurse aides are, are given a much broader role. Uh, they actually rebrand it. They don't call them CNAs. They call them Shabazim. It's just a, it's a, when you walk into a, uh, a, a greenhouse, you, you, you see the difference in terms of resident care, but you also see the difference in the staff and just how they're treated, how they're valued. So you can break that down in a nursing home environment, but um, all of this takes resources. It takes accountability. It, it's a Jasmine transparent. I think there, there's so much in these, you know, uh, Gift mentioned regulations. It, t- it takes a lot of different uh, factors to actually build that model, but it, it's it's 100% doable as PACE is done and, and can be done in, in models like the greenhouse. So CMS actually changed some of their requirements for nursing homes, and one of which was to include certified nursing assistants as part of the interdisciplinary care teams in nursing homes and for them to contribute in resident care plans which is is great and it's important and speaks to what um, you're sharing with regards to what's happening in the pace setting, right? Um, in order for us to really know the resident, we need to have those 
who know the residents best, who spend the most time with them, part of those conversations. But the issue with that new um, kind of revision to the requirements to nursing homes is that it gives nursing homes flexibility in what that looks like, right? And in regards to them being a part of the interdisciplinary care teams, they could actually just send an email. They don't necessarily need to be a part of the meetings. And then what does it mean for them to participate in, in or contribute to resident care plans? That That's not formulated. That's not kind of thought out. And then in some ways, it might be nice for nursing homes to have that flexibility. But when you are built on a system that really has not been able or, and has not done that with regards to bringing certified nursing assistants in, and maybe there's challenges and barriers to, to do that as well when thinking about, you know, does times actually match up, you know, when meetings are happening and if certified nursing assistants are providing resident care. There, there's a lot to that. So how do we actually look at other models that are doing this well and able to incorporate certified nursing assistants as they should be into these teams and then replicate that and scale it up and say, you know, this is how we do it and this is how it gets done across the board. Uh, and I just wanted to add something to what GIF shared as well when thinking about the nursing assistants and their experiences of racial slurs, for example, by residents who may be cognitively impaired, where indeed nursing assistants, they, they don't necessarily, uh, or they respond, you know, pretty well with regards to that experience and that, you know, they kind of chop it up to say, well, you know, the, the resident doesn't know any better, but it does affect them when a person that actually sees that, for example, a supervisor or a parent doesn't say anything. And in, in some cases, it's not that a person doesn't want to say anything to support them. In, um, in some cases, it's just that they don't know what to say, how to respond, you know, or they feel, you know, ashamed or embarrassed for that person, right? So it's thinking about, you know, how do we provide supports and training uh, to staff in general um, in nursing homes and, in, in, and beyond nursing homes to be able to respond and care for one another better. And if you had a, a resident or a patient who was my, uh, cognitively impaired and they physically attacked a staff worker, whether they kicked them or, or anything like that, right? Where we might've experienced that in, uh, in acute care setting or long-term care setting, what do we do? Do we just look at the person that just got kicked and, and walk away? Or do we at least say, hey, are you okay? If there's nothing else that we can do, if we're you know not in the size where we can actually restrain the resident, the least thing that we could do is say, are you okay? So just kind of thinking about that, if we don't know anything else to do when we experience those types of interactions, checking in with the individual and asking them, are they okay? We've talked a little bit about different models of care, and we know that GIF loves PACE programs. Um, the truth is the majority of people needing long-term care services don't live in nursing homes. So, Sean, I'm going to ask you, what's been the U.S. experience to date with models of care that provide long-term care services outside institutional settings? And moving forward, what's the potential of those kinds of programs to uh, address the ongoing challenges in the long-term care sector? Yeah, um, mixed. I mean, I think if you look across the states, there's some states that have done a phenomenal job offering people a wide kind of diverse array of options. And then you have other states where, you know, you've got waiting lists for community-based services, community-based alternatives on a paid for under Medicaid that are years, you know, in length to get in. So, you know, I think depending on what state you're in, you're going to have a very different long-term care experience if you're a Medicaid beneficiary. And, um, 
So having said that, I think there has been some progress. I think the biggest challenge is, again, states, you know, HCBS exists at the pleasure of the states, not only in, in its nature, but its degree. You know, you've got many, you know, I, I always looked at Oregon and there's some states that are, you know, I have, have very well thought out systems that are very community based. I think, you know, in general, they're considered to have, be doing a very good job. Um, they have other states where it's largely still almost entirely an institutional delivery model. So I think depending on what state you're in, you're going to have a very different experience. Can you uh, just describe the good state? What have they done specifically that makes it better? It's one example. I don't want to hold it up as the best, but it's yeah. one example I think many individuals look to in the use of, for example, adult care foster homes, um, very small home-like environments, uh, very minimal number of individuals that are served there. Um, and it's a big, it's kind of the tip of the spear of the Oregon model. Um, mm -hmm. And then you've got other states that are, you know, still largely an institutional model and any waiver, community-based waiver services uh, have waiting lists that are excessive. So you really have no option other than a nursing home. And I do think when it comes to kind of systemic racism, you know, I think choice is one of the most important things we can put in front of people. And unfortunately, depending on what market you're in, what state you're in, your choices are not necessarily the same. So, but I, but I think the biggest obstacle to kind of doing something at the state level is how we budget. You know, states are typically on a one or two year budget cycle and having made this pitch numerous times over the years, you go into a state and ask them to invest in something new like PACE and they pretty much see it as new money. You know, even mm -hmm. though you know you're diverting people away from more expensive care and, and less desirable settings perhaps, it's really hard to get that money in a budget through the legislature. It's very, very difficult to do that. It takes multiple years to do that. So there are some kind of what I call systemic kind of um, obstacles that exist at the state level to make changes, on, at least under Medicaid. But I think we're making progress. And, I, and as I think we in the PACE community like to say, you know, it's unfortunate that it took a pandemic for us to really be unleashed a little bit. We're seeing unprecedented opportunities for growth right now, unfortunately, due to mm -hmm. a pandemic. Um, it's a very unfortunate catalyst for expansion, but it is what it is. So, Susan, I, I completely agree that everyone wants, and, I, and as I said, I love the PACE program and everything else, that people want to be cared for at home. You know, but there's the acuity level and the end stage dementia and just the acuity level and the ability to care for people at home in an efficient way is just doesn't exist in many places. And it may not be cheaper to do it at home for some of the high acuity ends. And we need to just recognize that, that, you know, I don't want cancer, but I want cancer treatment centers out there. I don't want to have a heart attack, but I want to make sure that there's groups to do heart attacks. I don't want to go to a nursing home, but I want a nursing home ready when I need to go there and my parents need to go there. And so we need to make sure we're investing in the right resources. So as we, talk about where to balance the funding. We've all said there's not enough funding right now for the resources we have. We have this huge baby boomer population that hasn't reached 85 yet, which is the population of needing long-term care. We're, we need to make sure we're prepared for that 10 to 15 year window. And the baby boomers, even if you divert, say half of them who would normally go to a nursing home to other sectors, it's going to overwhelm the long-term care sector. We're not ready for it. That's the next looming crisis coming. And I think this discussion needs to be planning for that as well. So I, I, I worry when I hear this discussion of, oh, it's either 
nursing home or home and community-based services. No, it's got to be both. I totally agree. I think it's really about re-envisioning how people yeah. move through the system. I grew up as a CNA and my family operates rural long-term care facilities in Kansas, nonprofits. And I, I value long-term care facilities. They should not be the mainstream or single option for people is my point. Yeah. And, and I do believe that there, you know, any given day across pace, 5% of our people are permanently placed in a nursing home. And they're largely individuals with mid to late stage dementia that are probably better served there, at least determined by the PACE team. So they're always going to be needed. I just think we need to really re-envision where does the nursing home fit in the long-term care continuum. Right now, I think it occupies a little bit too big a footprint. And we have an opportunity to really rethink how to use long-term care facilities in a manner that is most appropriate and, uh, and expand service options to people that could very well live in the community, um, um, maybe less cost, understanding that someday they may end up in a long-term care facility. But if we can mitigate that for as long as possible, it's good for the taxpayer. I think it's good for the consumer. And I think it's good for the communities in which they exist. I, I completely agree with you both. It's a false dichotomy to pit nursing homes against HCBS. We, we need both. Uh, we're, we're, we need a system. And that's just this problem of everything being so siloed. And Sean, I 100% agree with kind of the, the disparities across states and this underinvestment. And even our underinvestment in PACE, um, you know, we, we have far too few individuals in that program. I, I should go on record too. I'm a big fan of the PACE program, similar to GIF. And we like just the numbers don't uh, when, when you look at the numbers every year, uh, you know, you look at a MedPAC report and just the, the, the total number of individuals enrolled in PACE, it's far too, what is it, less than 100,000 national? That's just, that's too few given the number of individuals that would really benefit from this service. And so I, I like, how, how do we grow these models? How do we shorten those, those wait lists? Once again, it, it's going to take investment in those home and community-based models and something, you know, we, we've sort of talked around today, but I'll, I'll put out there is, why should there be these huge disparities across whether Oregon Medicaid or some other state wants to invest in this? Maybe we need to think about a more federalized system of, of, of long-term care where we can kind of level the playing field. And I, I, that's a pretty radical idea, but I, I think the, the disparities across states right now are really large, especially around home and community-based care. Clearly, there's a lot of more discussion and much more work to do to improve long-term care in the U.S. I want to really uh, thank our panel members for this rich discussion and also want to thank the New England Journal of Medicine for hosting this Perspective Roundtable. So thank you, everybody.